to dismiss the younger children. So younger children, if you want to go ahead and stand up where you are and head on down, downstairs church for kids. You don't have to go. You're welcome to stay here in the service with us. But Miss Marsha is going to lead uh, the children. And just, uh, just a word of encouragement for uh, parents of young children. Um, you know, we hear those voices, maybe during the singing or, or during the prayer. Um, I am not offended by that one bit. I love it. Because it reminds me of God's gift of life to the church. And it's a discipline, right, that we have to all kind of grow up in to get used to sitting still in the service. But this is an opportunity to encourage that, uh, that discipline. So that's why we're going to keep them in that first part. And then they'll have a ch child, children-appropriate uh, worship service lesson like they have been having. So that is what's going on there. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Galatians? We will be in Galatians again this morning. We are going through a series. This is the second uh, sermon in the series. Uh, if, if you haven't, or if you missed the first one, or if you have to miss one in the series, I do want you to know, Troy does a great job of recording all the sermons. Uh, if you're on Facebook, he's been putting those up on Facebook, but now they're going to be uh, accessible uh, via the website. So if you want to go to the website, uh, you can find those sermons uploaded and recorded there so that you won't have to miss any of them. Isn't that great? Yeah. And Troy's going to be preaching uh, next Sunday, of course. So that was the scheduled day that Daniel was supposed to be born. So I went ahead and had him scheduled to preach. Okay, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. Let me read. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me for a prayer of preparation? Father, we need to be reminded this morning that there is no other gospel. That your grace is sufficient. That the shed blood of your son Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. Father, I pray that we would not get that wrong. I pray that we would not get distracted from what matters most. I pray that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This morning we ask that your spirit would be with us. And I pray that the sermon that is heard here this morning, that is received in our hearts, would be far better than the one that is preached. In Jesus' name, amen. I think most of you know by now, uh, you've probably heard the stories, that I am a Navy man. Uh, spent some time on submarines, and in fact, I'm still in the Navy as a chaplain, as a Navy reservist. Uh, but one of the things that still continues to frustrate uh, many people in the Navy, the highest levels of leadership, 
particularly, but something that continues to baffle them and perplex them, is that despite so many technological advancements, so many advances in new technologies, the Navy still continues to be afflicted year after year by collision incidents. Now, when I was on the submarine, the first thing that they taught us to do in terms of driving the boat was they taught us how to drive the boat underwater, blind, because we have no windows. Some of you didn't know that. Um, but using a single green sonar screen, just lines running down the screen to drive the boat. And they taught us to navigate the ocean using a paper chart with a pencil and a straight edge. If you know how to do that, you're going to be just fine. But then what happens is you walk into the control room for the first time, and it is sensory overload. Your senses are assaulted by all the bells and whistles and flashing lights and alarms and fancy electronic displays. And it's often the case that when these collision incident reports come back, when they get the findings, when they come to their conclusions, you know what one of the most common core findings is in those incident reports? The crew had gotten distracted. They got distracted. They got distracted by all the extra stuff, by all the bells and whistles, by all the extra work that they had to do. Now, on my summary, we had multiple redundant redundancy features. We had state-of-the-art ship tracking technology. We had alarms to warn us about every possible condition that could go wrong. We had bloated, foolproof procedures that were meant to keep us from doing stupid things after years of lessons learned. And yet, still, no one has been able to solve this problem. Has been able to eradicate this problem of human error caused by distraction. Now, last week, I talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. How they were distracted by a scheme of Satan. So we could go all through the Old Testament, we go through all through the Bible, and we could read story after story of people getting distracted from what matters most. Think of Samson, distracted by his desire for Delilah, eventually lost his strength, he lost his authority, and even his life. In the New Testament, we learn of lots of people who are too distracted by their own wealth. The rich young man, Ananias and Sapphira, so distracted by their own wealth that they're willing to forfeit their souls because they can't follow Jesus. The cost is too great for them. Over and over in the Bible, God is warning us, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted from what matters most. And that is the central warning of this passage before us this morning. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. And so, as your pastor, I don't want any of us to get distracted from what matters most. So what I want to do this morning is from this passage... I've taken four, what I would call, protective principles that I see in this text. Four kind of guardrails to keep us fixed on what matters most and to keep us from getting distracted. And you have those in your bulletin this morning. Let me read those real, real quickly up front. Number one, if we are going to not get distracted, we need to know our calling. Know your calling. Number two, know the one and only gospel. Number three, beware of shiny objects. Avoid shiny objects. Number four, we need to know whom it is that we serve. Know whom you serve. 
So first, if you are to avoid these destructive distractions in your life, you must be certain of your calling. Know your calling. Paul's core concern for the Galatian churches, for the churches in Galatian, is that they were being deceived and they were buying into a false teaching. They were getting distracted from the real thing. It was a false teaching about the gospel. This group of Jewish believers called Judaizers, and they're called Judaizers because what they want to do is they want to make people Jews first before they can become Christians. They had infiltrated some of the very churches that Paul had helped plant through the gospel. What they were doing is they were adding on requirements. They were adding prerequisites for these non-Jewish converts, for these Greeks, to follow before they could even become Christians. They were insisting that God does not fully accept, accept you unless you first become like them. Unless you get circumcised, unless you eat the right foods, unless you obey our ceremonial laws. In other words, you first have to prove yourself worthy by your works before he accepts you by his grace. Now, as you can see, if you look in verse 6, this just puts Paul absolutely over the edge. Paul is livid. If you remember, this is the guy who, who formerly he used to hunt Christians down. He used to persecute them. But now, after his own personal encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, he has been radically changed. He has been brought from death to life. He has devoted his life to spreading the one true gospel message. All are justified before God, before a holy God, by faith alone, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. And not only that, he is, Paul is as Jewish as can be. He is from the tribe of Benjamin, personally educated by one of the most respected Jewish authorities. So imagine just how upset he was when he found out that his own people were now going and deceiving the very people that he had brought the gospel to. I said last week that in every letter that we see Paul writing to the churches, what he does after the greeting is he almost always provides a word of thanksgiving or a word of encouragement. If you look in verse 6, you see that is not the case in Galatians. He says, I am astonished. He's astonished. He's amazed. He's dumbfounded that in such a short amount of time, maybe even just one or two years or less, these churches have so quickly traded in a gospel of freedom for a religion based on rule keeping. They have abandoned their calling. He says, you are so quickly, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now remember, these were converted followers of Jesus listening to the teaching of other Jews claiming to be followers of Jesus. They were likely receiving this message out of a genuine desire to seek the Lord. These were sincere people. This isn't Hinduism or Buddhism or some foreign religion altogether. This is people who genuinely want to follow Christ. And you see how easy it is to just get distracted a little bit thrown off course because of the perilous poison of this doctrine of relying on works and efforts to save rather than God's gift of grace in Christ, Paul describes it as abandoning God. Think how serious that is. To rely on your own works is to abandon the God who called you by his grace. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you have a relationship with him, you must be certain of your calling. You must be certain of this, that the only reason that you know him, the only reason you have a relationship with him, the only reason that his spirit lives in you today, the only reason that you have hope of eternal life is because he has called you by his grace. Nothing you have done on your own. To try to somehow contribute anything to your own salvation is actually a rejection of the God who called you by his grace. To try to contribute something to your salvation is to deny the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. I posted this quote on Facebook earlier in the week from William Temple, an Anglican bishop. He said, The only thing of my own which I can contribute to my own redemption is the sin for which I need to be redeemed. The only thing we can contribute to our own salvation, to our own redemption, is our sin for which we need to be redeemed. Friends, if we don't want to get distracted, we must be certain of our calling. This morning, after the sermon, we're going to respond by singing, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Just imagine the absurdity if we say, What can wash away my sin? Jesus' blood and some other really good things that I must do first. <laughs> what can make me whole again? A little bit of Jesus' blood shed on the cross for me, and a little bit of that stuff I did all week long to earn his favor. No, we see nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now Paul goes on, he says, having deserted the one who called them, they're in fact turning to another gospel. Now he says that almost tongue-in-cheek, because he says not that there is one, there's not another gospel, but you're turning to another gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that brings us to that second guardrail, that second protective principle. If we want to avoid those dangerous distractions which take us away from this message that gives life, we must, we must know for certain the one and only true gospel. I can say that over and over again. We must know for certain this gospel. Paul even says in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's only by knowing the one true gospel that we're able to identify all the false ones. That we're able to identify rightly all of the counterfeits. And there are many counterfeits out there. Some of you may have heard the old illustration about how the secret service agents used to uh, train and be so adept at training others on how to identify counterfeit money. Have you heard that, that illustration? It's not because they studied all of the counterfeits. They knew all the false uh, copies of money out there. It's because they had handled and they had touched and they had examined and they had studied the real thing so much. That's how they were able to identify the counterfeits. The best way that you and I can avoid falling prey to these deceptive teachings is to know God's word so well. To be steeped in this. To have our noses in this day after day after day. Yeah. If you want to avoid making a shipwreck of your life, do what the psalmist says and meditate on this day and night. 
And guess what you'll be like? A tree planted, not going anywhere. A tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season, out of season. In everything you do, you will prosper. Paul says these false teachers are distorting the gospel. They're altering it to the point that it's become something different altogether. They've drained the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. They've drained the gospel of the power. If you want to avoid doing that, you need to be steeped in God's word. And by the way, just as an aside, you also need to be part of a church that values and esteems God's word because we all go astray and we get distracted from time to time and we need one another to come back and say, this, keep your eyes fixed on this. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. See, Satan is a master pretender. Satan is a master deceiver. Satan is a master marketer. He's a master distractor. He knows well enough that the best way to get you to believe a lie is to make it look as much as possible like the truth. That's the way he does it. He's so much smarter than we think. To tweak it just enough to make it attractive to us, while at the same time, just enough of a departure from the real thing to destroy us. You remember the fall of man in the garden? How did, it, how did the fall come in to, to be? How did it come to be? It wasn't a monster, a scary monster, devouring Adam and Eve in the garden. It was them eating fruit from a tree. You remember what God said? He said, you can surely eat of all of the trees in this garden. Eat the fruit from this tree, except this one. And how did Satan devour them? By getting them to eat fruit from a tree. It looked a whole lot like the real thing. Satan knows how to dress up a lie. If you want someone to abandon the gospel, if you want someone to abandon the gospel, one way to do it is to get them to buy into the lie that God only helps those who help themselves. God only helps those who help themselves. You've probably heard that several times. And by the way, I read that read this week that in a Barna survey, 82% of all surveyed Christians thought that this was a verse in the Bible. <laughs> Friends, this is not a verse in the Bible. Bible. God helps those who cannot help themselves because we're not good enough to help ourselves. You just have to get someone to buy the lie that the gospel is more about their work than it is about Christ's work on the cross. And you know, I too am often astonished, I'm astounded, I'm dumbfounded and perplexed with what I find when I walk into a Christian bookstore. And you need to be aware of this. You can go into a Christian self-help section, just the idea of that is strange, a Christian self-help section, and flip through book after book focused on building a better you, focused on accomplishing your dreams, focused on reaching your goals without a single mention of the fact that salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scripture alone. You can find nothing in these books about the daily need for a dependence on God's grace, nothing about being poor in spirit, nothing about his power being made perfect in our weakness. Just some worldly counsel appealing to the unlocked potential inside of all of us. And yet, 
perhaps because of one or two passing references to Jesus or to the scripture, all of this is packaged as a Christian message. Brothers and sisters, I believe that we are no less vulnerable today. There is no less misguided teaching out there. In fact, I would submit to you there is far more misguided teaching after 2,000 years of opportunity to get it wrong than in the time when Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians. And if you buy into these false messages, they will leave you empty, they will leave you unsatisfied, they will leave you enslaved. Because all of them are directed towards getting you to do what you can do in your own strength and not depending on God's grace to save. Paul is so emphatic because he knows just how dangerous this non-gospel was to the churches. When you lose the gospel, you lose the power. When the gospel goes, so goes the church. If a church is not preaching the gospel, if the church is not studying the gospel, if the church is not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's not really a church. It's a non-church, just the same as the message is a non-gospel. So Paul, who was the missionary hero, the giant of the faith, an expert in the Old Testament, and who wrote most of the New Testament, he would say things like this. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. This was first importance for Paul. This is all he cared for people to know when he taught them. See, ever since Paul had the cataracts of his sin surgically removed by Christ on the road to Damascus, his eyes had been firmly fixed on the glory of Jesus. His words he would use to spread the aroma of Christ. How could he alter or distort or add to this message which had brought him from death to life? Why would he want to go back into that slavery? Friends, don't get distracted. There is no other gospel. There are only imitations. There will never be another gospel, but there will always be an abundance of shiny objects to distract us. And that's the third principle this morning. If we are to stay on course, we must avoid shiny objects. Look what he says in verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. See, Paul wants us to be sure that this gospel is a message as firmly fixed as the heavens themselves. It cannot change. It will never change. It's about the message. It's not about the messenger. Paul had come bringing this message that he had received himself from the Lord, from Christ, and he had delivered it to the churches in Galatia. And in just a short amount of time, shiny objects, new teachers had come in. It tweaked the message just enough to turn it into something different. And now here the churches are, they're falling for it. They don't know anybody. They're falling for it to their own demise. 
I think evangelical churches in America today, particularly in America, I would say, suffer from a similar malady. And I call it, well, I don't even think I call it this. It's called the shiny object syndrome. You can actually Google that. It's a thing. The shiny object syndrome. I wonder if you've ever heard of it. The shiny object syndrome is called that because it mimics the way a toddler, no matter what he's doing, if he sees a shiny object, all his attention is diverted and he chases after that. As a part of our sin nature, we become tired of the familiar. We become tired of the consistent. We become so tired, so fatigued with the old, the tried, the true. We're under the illusion that new is always better. New is always better, especially when that new thing is marketing itself to us as being more focused on us and appealing to us and our felt needs. Just think of all the self-help fads or books or gurus that have come and gone in just the past 10 to 20 years. Now, don't get distracted because I realize now you're trying to think of all those <laughs> fads and books and gurus, things like The Power of Positive Thinking. I bet there's no kids here who have read that book today, but that was all the rage for a while. When the newness of one message or one preacher or one program has worn off, we go searching for the newer, the brighter, the feel-goodest thing that we can find. That's not a word. <laughs> but what Paul is saying here is that it's not about the flashiness or the glitz of the message or messenger. It's not about how brilliant the teacher is in matters of worldly wisdom. The only thing that matters is whether the content of the message is true. Whether the content of the message is real. The way Paul communicates this is so forceful. You can almost see him jumping up and down, pulling his hair out to get this message across. Whenever you see the word preach, and you see the, the word gospel in this passage several times, even when you see the word preach in this passage, it's a very specific word for preach. There's, there's a few words in the New Testament that mean to preach. This word specifically is that word to evangelize, to preach specifically the gospel. So if I read this passage again to you, just emphasizing the word gospel, listen to how it sounds. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach the gospel to you, contrary to the one, the gospel that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Does everybody get a sense of what Paul thinks is most important here? It's the gospel. It's the one true gospel. He's saying, I don't care if an angel from heaven came down to visit your church here this morning. If it ain't the gospel, don't believe it. In fact, not only should you not believe it, but let that man be accursed. That word is probably spelled out literally in some of your translations, anathema, meaning to be eternally cut off from God, eternally condemned. We play around with these things Today, we say, oh, they, they get it mostly right. I think they're doing a good job. If it's not the gospel, he says, let that person be accursed. He has no room for some type of tolerant universalism that is preached from so many pulpits today. Let that man be accursed. That's how serious a matter this is. 
And I think you all should know this, that about 600 years after the resurrection of Christ, right? 620 AD, 600 years after the resurrection of Christ, there was a man living in Arabia who would claim that an angel, the angel Gabriel, visited him in a cave and revealed to him a new revelation. And by the way, if you ever hear the words new revelation, you should run as fast as you can. This revelation was just as Paul warned against. One that was contrary to the gospel that the apostles had preached, that he had preached. And guess what the core of that message is? That was supposedly revealed to this man by an angel. The core of that message is that if you do enough good works, if you obey the five pillars, if you by your own strength prove yourself worthy, you might reach heaven. Does that sound like the very thing that Paul is preaching against here? We could fast forward about 1,200 years later to here in the United States. 1820s, the state of New York. Another man claims to have been visited by an angel from heaven. And this angel gave him a revelation which redefined the nature of God. It redefined the origin of man, it redefined the person of Jesus, and it redefined the way of salvation. In fact, in one of the passages from this religion's sacred book, you can read one of these new revelations yourself. Love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds like something we've heard, heard before. Love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Comma. Then is his grace sufficient for you. Did you see how it got the order wrong? Not God has called us by his grace now. Love him. Love him in this way. Do these things, then his grace is sufficient for you. This particular religion, as of 2012, was the fastest growing religion in North America. The first one I mentioned is the second largest religion in the world. Both of them promote a message that diminishes the sufficiency of Christ and exalts the work of man for his own salvation. Both of them have their origins in claims that an angel from heaven visited them with a new gospel. Friends, don't get distracted by shiny objects. New is not better. Only true is better. The gospel is enough. I would rather sit here, I would rather come here Sunday morning after Sunday morning and listen to the most monotone, unskilled, uneducated person remind me that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again on the third day, and that I can have life everlasting and abundant life in Christ than to be dazzled by the most gifted, most dynamic, most skilled speaker going on and on with worldly wisdom about reaching my dreams and unlocking my potential, all the while diminishing the glory of Christ. So can I plead with you this morning? The gospel is enough. Write that down. The gospel is enough. You cannot hear that enough. Christ shed blood for you is enough. The resurrection of Christ is enough for you. Finally, if you want to get, avoid getting distracted by these messages leading us astray, you need to know whom you serve. 
get it straight right now in this room, right where, we, where you are. Who do you serve? Paul is going to wrap up this thought by reasserting his motivation. Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I still trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Am I just trying to please man? Am I a people pleaser? And ask yourself that question here this morning. Am I just trying to please man or God? There's good reason to believe that some of the Judaizers may have felt that Paul was a people pleaser. This is the same Paul who said that he became all things to all men. And who said, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You see, he was, so, he was sensitive enough to this radical new reality that the Jewish people were facing that he didn't want to unnecessarily offend them. He wanted to gain an open door, but it was always for the purpose that he wanted them to know the salvation that only comes from Christ. You might think of it today like a, a missionary going into a foreign land and wearing the traditional garb because he or she wants to gain an open door to the gospel to those who have never heard it. In everything, Paul's central motivation was to make Christ known. Is that your motivation in life, to make Christ known in everything you do? He says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. He knew for certain that above all else he was a servant of Christ. And just think for a little bit how liberating that is, because one of the biggest stressors that we face in this life is trying to please everyone, which is impossible, by the way. And if you can get this straight right now, that there is one person that you have to serve, one person who it is life-giving to serve, and that that is Jesus, then whatever you do, in response to that one truth in your life is going to be what's best for everyone else. That doesn't work for trying to serve anyone else but serving Christ. I need to preach that to myself this morning. If you want to avoid getting distracted or swept up by futile philosophies and fruitless fads, know whom you serve. If you remember this, you will live your life according to promises that will never fail you. You will live your life as a citizen in a kingdom that can never be shaken. You will be anchored by a sure word that will never let you down, will never return void. And you will find yourself serving in a church against which even the gates of hell cannot overcome. You will build your life on a firm foundation. So in summary, if you want to avoid getting distracted, if you want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, know your calling. Know that it's by grace that you have been saved, not by works lest any man should boast. It's a free gift from God. Number two, know the one and only gospel. When you leave here today, turn to your, your neighbor, turn to your spouse and ask on the way home. Turn to your kids and say, could you explain to me the gospel? If you couldn't give some kind of summary in about a minute, then think, pursue that. Say, I want to be able to share with people the one and only true gospel. I want to know the counterfeits. I want to be able to identify the counterfeits because I know the real thing so well. 
Third, we need to avoid shiny objects. Even angels that want to, that come down from heaven, supposedly, and want to offer us new revelations. New is not better. True is better. And finally, we need to know whom we serve. We need to get it straight right now that we are servants of Christ above all else. 